0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Mara Fitzgerald to the program today. Mara's day job is a scientist, but she recently published her first book, a young adult fantasy novel where the water and heroes are in short supply, while expectations of piety are rather high. It's called Beyond the Ruby Veil, and it's published by Little Brown Books for Young Readers. Mara, as the book opens up, Emanuela Ragno is preparing to be married to Alessandro Morandi. This seems like a pretty standard marriage between noble families in pre-20th century Europe.
1: Correct. It does seem that way at first, right? (laughs) Wink, wink. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So that was actually sort of my initial inspiration for the book. Initially came from a vision that I had of two characters who were looking for something and they needed something really desperately. It turns out, you know, what they need is water because their city is out of water. But the next obvious question I ask myself is, who are these two characters and what are they to each other? So for a while I had been playing around with the idea of characters who are in this sort of traditional arranged marriage. And a lot of times when you see an arranged marriage in a fantasy novel, it's one of a couple of things. It can be, you know, they're in an arranged marriage, but they don't like each other at all. They're not in love, so they don't want to, you know, get married. Or they are in an arranged marriage that, you know, they are using it for political reasons, but they're going to end up falling in love. These are two quite common tropes, right? I was interested in exploring two best friends who are in an arranged marriage with each other, but neither one is ever going to be romantically interested in each other. But that doesn't mean they don't want to get married.
0: Do you happen to remember the circumstance of when that vision first hit you?
1: Yeah. So I initially had the idea in a dream. But a lot of times when I get my ideas, I realize later that it came from a synthesis of a lot of other things that I had already been thinking about. So I always keep a journal where I just write down anything that occurs to me, like some examples of things I'd written down for this book, I wrote down, you know, I love Little Shop of Horrors. I love this idea of like, you have to sacrifice blood in order to get what you want. Somebody should put that in a book. Like, again, I love the idea of two characters in an arranged marriage who are best friends, somebody should put that in a book. So I have this whole document of like, somebody should like figure out how to put that in a book. (laughs) So when I woke up from this dream, I realized like finally I have an idea of characters who want something, an idea that has legs and all of my sort of previous, somebody should put that in a book ideas sort of flow into like the new idea that I have. Immediately after having this idea, I also did go work at a haunted house which I think may have influenced the aesthetic of the book a little bit it has kind of like a spooky like zany aesthetic and that may have bled into my brain as I was percolating on the idea
0: now was this like a kitschy Halloween haunted house or a place that purported to truly be haunted
1: I'm the wrong person to ask because I think it's all terrifying which was the sort of irony is that I was working there I was too afraid to leave my station and go to like the bathroom because I was like, I'm going to get scared. Like, I don't want to walk through this myself, but it was, it was kitschy. It was not, there are real ghosts here. Like somebody was murdered here. Hopefully not.
0: So how do you handle scary situations when you come across them, when you're making a story?
1: For some reason, when I'm the one writing it, it doesn't bother me as much. I think that's sort of an element of maybe like the catharsis of literature, just the idea that when you're the one in control of the narrative, you sort of decide how far the experience goes and you know if it's if there's certain types of things that are too terrifying to you you can write you know something else so for example you know i find the idea there's a little bit in the book we sort of get into the idea or suggestion that there is a ghost-like presence or there is area underneath the city they have catacombs that they believe are haunted That doesn't scare me as much as, you know, things like true crime, serial killers. I hate all that stuff. (laughs) So I'm sort of able to channel my energy and find the sort of spooky aesthetic things that I want to that I can also handle writing about.
0: And you mentioned Little Shop of Horrors. I don't remember seeing a dentist or Steve Martin in the story at all.
1: No, that would have been the best way to put Little Shop of Horrors in, but I wouldn't dare try to emulate Steve Martin's iconic performance.
0: So as you mentioned, our two main characters are best friends, Ale and Emanuela, and Ale is looking for a different type of partner.
1: We find out pretty early on, you know, Ale and Emanuela are both noble children. And again, they're engaged to be married. The main reason for this is obviously political and the life in their city revolves around bearing children. So the most important thing you can do with your life is bear children because they have very short lives. And so it's all about finding this perfect partner and continuing the family line. But Emanuela and her best friend are both gay. Ale is gay and then she is a lesbian. So they don't really have a way to have a union in their city. So they find this union with each other.
0: And Ali has a little bit more connection to his sexuality. He he acknowledges it and he's a young man. So, I mean, he's got all the, the hormones attendant with that. But it seems that Emanuela has kind of pushed those type of feelings to the side.
1: Right. This is something that's been very interesting to see reactions to. And I did write it intentionally, right? And it sort of is a result of who they are as people, Ale is a romantic. It's mentioned several times, you know, he loves reading romance novels. He's very in touch with his feelings. And as you mentioned, yeah, he's like a young man. So he's just very in touch with how he feels about things, what he wants. He has, you know, this boy that he's like admiring from afar.
0: Manfredo Campagna.
1: Yes, <laughs> the great Manfredo. So he, you know, sort of fixates on people, idolizes them the way you do as like a teenager. Emma does not express feelings. Period. Like she has a very hard time with feelings and vulnerability. So there are hints of her attraction, but it tends to manifest itself more as aggression. She has like a rival girl, you know, a rival noble girl. They go to all the same parties. So She's always like starting drama with this girl. She's like obsessed with her. She's like, I'm going to dress like so well and I'm going to look so good that she's going to like stare at me all night and hate me. But this has nothing to do with me liking her. I just want to, you know, look better than her. She's not emotionally there yet, right? To acknowledge just the vulnerability of even having a sexuality and having feelings. She manifested as this very like, we're in a fight now. That's the only reason I... I'm looking at you is because we're in a fight.
0: So she seems almost like kind of the, the parody of a kid in elementary school who would cut off the pigtails of the the girl sitting in front of them or, or putting the, in, in really olden days, the pigtails into the inkwells.
1: She is exactly that, unfortunately. I think one of the great things about writing for teenagers and about teenagers is that you can be simultaneously really mature in some ways and dealing with really mature things. But also your frontal lobe is still not developed and maybe emotionally you're not at certain places yet. So it's great to explore both of those things at the same time.
0: She is a very spirited young person. But as you mentioned, at times she can be also very cruel and dismissive of others.
1: Yes. So definitely one inspiration I took from her was the idea of like the high school mean girl, like Regina George from Mean Girls. Uh, like Blair Waldorf from Gossip Girl. What if we wrote about that sort of mean girl but put her in you know a high fantasy setting? and also now in this setting, like this very hyper realistic setting, she can actually you know do murders and has a knife.
0: They live in this city state of Okia about how many people live in the city.
1: That's a great question that I did not do the math on. (laughs) Uh, I would love somebody to do the math on. The conceit of their city is that they don't have a natural source of water. The only place they can get it is from the blood of its citizens. So they have a magic woman who takes the blood of people who are marked for dying. She takes their blood and turns it into water. So yeah, it has crossed my mind, like, mathematically, how does this city work? But, you know, the point is that the people have to make a sacrifice in order to keep the city alive. The only way to keep the city alive is if other people die. And that's sort of the very problematic concept that our city is built on
0: and that kind of ties into contemporary views of climate change and water resource going to be more difficult to maintain clean fresh water in the future. I think those ideas very much tie into this story.
1: Definitely the idea of there's not enough to go around and somebody is going to have to give something up to fix that problem. But also, who's telling you this? It's me, the all-powerful ruler who's not going to explain why you know, I've had a hand in constructing the world, but I'm not going to explain why I constructed this way. All I'm going to tell you is, yeah, you people over there have to die for everybody because there's not enough to go around. But is that true? I don't know. That's something that the book will explore, especially the second book in this series. We will explore the idea of whether or not this is inherently the way a society has to be, or if this is perhaps a construct by somebody who wants to maintain power.
0: And in one of our hints that this might be a construct is that the sky is known as the veil.
1: Yes. So they live underneath this red veil. I mentioned previously that people go to give up their blood when they are marked for death. So the veil is the thing that is actually marking people for death. Hypothetically, you wake up one day and you have this like red mark on your skin and people say oh that means that you know these red marks are going to continue to spread across your skin and you're going to die so it's time for you to give up your blood one of the main questions i get about the book is obviously what is the veil why don't they have a sky why do they have a veil instead is there anything you know on the other side of the veil and where did the veil come from so one of those questions is answered in the book the other two are still sort of up in the air
0: Because they're not technologically advanced enough to have powered flight in order to go interact with the veil.
1: Yeah, somebody should just build a plane and go into it. I mean, (laughs) so what they believe is that if you did that, you would just die, right? But is it true? I don't know. Who can say?
0: Back to Emanuela and Ale. She's a very forceful personality, and he is a follower. He is not the, the alpha in this pack.
1: Yeah, so every good hero and or villain needs a sidekick, right? So that is sort of the concept behind him. And that is also the way that she thinks of him. She is a main character who knows she's a main character. And she's like, you are the sidekick in my story. You have no life outside of me. Like everything you do revolves around me, basically. He sort of believes this too at the beginning, right? He buys into this as well, because as you said, he's like a very shy person. He's very passive. But the events of the story, especially at the beginning, the story begins really when Emomela kills the ruler of their city because she's like, well, I don't want to be locked up by this ruler, so I'm just going to kill her. Like, I don't know what's going to happen to everybody else. I don't really care. Like, I just kill whoever gets in my way. So for the first time, Ale starts to see, like, this is the person I'm following around. I knew she was like a bully, mean girl, but this is how much of a bully mean girl that she truly is. You know, what does it say about me that I spend my whole life following her around? And a lot of his story is about him questioning that.
0: People who love Atlas Shrugged probably think Emmanuel is just a a wonderful, wonderful person.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the great thing about books, right? Is you never know what people are going to take away from it. I feel like I present her as, this is not something you should aspire to. <laughs> but you never know what people are going to take away once it goes out into the world.
0: Well, and people so often confuse protagonist with hero.
1: Right, yes. I don't know like how much we want to get into it. I definitely don't think it's a spoiler. Well, I think you've that... already given
0: away a lot more than I was planning yes. on to. So <laughs> <laughs> you make the call.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I typically talk about the events of Up to chapter three, I don't consider that a spoiler. So chapter three is when Imamuela kills the ruler of their city, sort of, you know, jump-starting the plot in that they no longer have someone to make them water. But I don't think it's a spoiler at all to say that Imamuela is an anti-hero. I think you can see that from the first page. She's basically just being a jerk on the first page. She has this, like, priceless family wedding dress that she's supposed to be wearing, and she's like, this is ugly, I don't want to wear this. So she just sort of rips it up that's definitely not, you know, a heroic Disney princess action, right? Whether or not she is a full-on villain is sort of up to the reader and up to the trajectory of the story.
0: And it seems her temperament comes from her father. He seems to have fostered this attitude in her.
1: Right. So one thing I was interested in doing with that, especially I think when you're writing a character who is as unlikable as Emma is and especially if they're a female character it seems like there's always this expectation or this question of like why is she like this like what happened to her basically that made her this way is something that a lot of people ask so a lot of times in fiction the answer is that that comes a lot of times they make it come from like trauma like You know, this female character was like abused and that's why, you know, she's so evil. So with Emanuela, I wanted to sort of not follow that path, but still make her someone who's very unlikable and have there hopefully be an explanation for why she is the way that she is. So her father, the way that she perceives her father is that he sees her as like his mini me, basically, and they're a team she emphasizes a lot, you know, we're a team, we share a similar ambition. He's put me in this great marriage, because I'm going to get a lot of political advantages. And he's training me because we're a team, whether or not her father actually sees her as his equal or his little sort of minion to move around the chessboard is also a question that is explored. But yeah, it was important for me to show where she comes from without necessarily making it be like, you know, it was an extremely traumatic, like, upbringing.
0: And the family's name, Ragno, is the source of her father's nickname for her.
1: Ragno is Italian for spider, so he calls her my little spider. So the way I conceptualize their family names is they go back extremely far, right, to the beginning of the city. So much like surnames nowadays, you know, you can have somebody with a surname like Miller. And I guess originally that means they worked at a mill it doesn't necessarily correlate to who they are now, but there is something there, right? She's very interested in fashion. You know, her family is sort of known for like silks and that sort of thing. It also, in our world, you know, we definitely perceive spiders as being bad. I don't like spiders. We perceive them as being associated with villainy, like deviousness, that sort of aesthetic. So I did want to convey that she comes from that sort of place as well.
0: So on your website, it says in your day job, that you're a biologist and you look at way too many insects under a microscope, does that include arachnids?
1: It actually does not because I would not be able to work that job (laughs) if it did because I do not like spiders. So there is also a spider on the cover of the book. And people who know me were like, I think it's hilarious that you have a spider on the cover of your book because you hate spiders so much. It's true. I don't like them. I don't know why I did this besides that it fit the character, but I do regret it because now I have to look at spiders and write about them. (laughs)
0: I had a a friend in Germany. She was just terrified. I mean, just couldn't even see a picture of them without just being extremely scared.
1: I don't blame her. It's something about the legs. Like, I think there's a, the lizard brain in us is like, this is bad. I want to get out of here. And I think we should listen to that instinct when we see spiders.
0: So King Crab, similar feelings?
1: Oh yeah. I don't like crabs either. Yeah. It's not as bad. I don't, I don't know why. I think a lot of times with spiders too, The fear, when you see it on your wall, it's not just that it's creepy. The fear is that it's going to jump on your face as soon as you get near it. A crab, I don't feel like, is going to do that. So I trust crabs a little more.
0: Did you happen to see that, at least the headlines of that article recently, about why things keep evolving into crabs? No. It's like four different taxonomical lines have moved toward crab-shaped beings over the years. It just doesn't come from one common ancestor.
1: That is interesting because the way I mean, just the sideways scuttling is that adaptive? I guess it is. I guess I could read the article and find out.
0: <laughs> Maybe you just got to tap dance sometimes.
1: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's that is actually the secret to survival, and the rest of us are just messing around.
0: So let's dig into some of these other names. Once I saw Emanuela, and it made me think of Emmanuel, and in the Bible. Joseph is visited by an angel and said that the Savior will be born to his family and he'll be named Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And it seems a very portentous name to give your character is a a female version of
1: that. (laughs) Right, yeah. When Whether or not she actually is the Savior is questionable. So a lot of times when I'm naming characters, I try to think about what their parents would name them, right? in my mind, quite a realistic way to name them and tells you a lot about how they were raised and where they were raised. So she is the oldest daughter in her family, and they're very religious, loosely based on Catholicism, which is my own upbringing. So I just felt like it was a very appropriate name that they would give their child. And then also, yeah, sort of an ironic name for a character who doesn't do great things for her city, but maybe thinks that she's doing great things.
0: Yeah, in order to save the village, we must destroy the village was something they used to say during Vietnam, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's how it works.
0: (laughs) Alessandro looked up and that name means defender of the people.
1: Yes, Alessandro, again, just thinking about how he would be named by his parents, he is also the first boy in the family. He is a middle child, but he is the first boy, so he is intended to be the heir And then again, thinking about his role as sort of going from Emanuela's sidekick, who doesn't really contribute anything, to really looking at his place and questioning what sort of person he wants to be. And if he really thinks that the best thing he can do for everybody is just follow Emanuela around as she sort of wreaks havoc everywhere, or if maybe he needs to step up a little bit and try his own way.
0: And for Morandi, I saw a couple of possible meanings. One said maybe steadfast, but in Spanish, Morando means home.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, I only knew the Italian one. His family is the wealthiest family in the city. Again, the sort of idea of our names have maybe lost meaning from what they originally were. But I think they were, you know, the ones to establish themselves as we're in charge of this place.
0: So does kind of nominative determinism, you think, play a role in your books do you have to have names that are appropriate
1: not necessarily a lot of times I start with feel it's very important to for me to have like the right feel for a name and then a lot of times I will actually look up a name after the fact and be like wow that was a clever name I gave that character
0: (laughs) thank you subconscious
1: (laughs) my subconscious takes credit for it but sometimes it's definitely like I want it to feel appropriate for who they are based on like where they came from And then maybe it also takes on like a cool secondary meaning when you take a second look at it.
0: Now, the name of the city Orchia, similar to Orchio, which is the Italian for eye.
1: Yes. Without saying too much, um, we will discover that eyes are very intrinsic to the world building and the magic system that exists so the ruler of their city she also has a sort of association with eyes in the sense that her magical power which is the ability to take blood and turn it into water comes from her eyes and her ability to see and when you combine that with the fact that the city she lives in and rules is named after an eye maybe not a coincidence
0: of course, without giving away the end, I was going, book two cannot get here soon enough. That was a, a heck of a place to leave off at.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm a big believer in not necessarily the cliffhanger, right? But I believe, you know, in the first book, you set up a certain question. And if it's going to be a series, you still have a bunch of other questions, right? If you can see that the story has the sort of legs to become a series, So the question of the first book is, is Emma Mulligan be able to save her own city? And that question is answered, but there are still a lot of other questions that we have. Again, hearkening back to the idea of the veil. Where did the veil come from? Why, you know, is our society like this? What is going to become of all of us, basically, is all of the things that are left for book, two.
0: So do you have an arc for many books in the series or... Is it going to be fairly compact, a trilogy or something like that?
1: It is a duology. So I am working on the second book right now. It's like too much to write a trilogy. I obviously love trilogies. They're, you know, a staple of the fantasy genre. But for these books, I think a trilogy is too much. Because if I gave a three books, I don't know what would happen. Like, she destroys so much in one book. I think she would just destroy the whole universe by the end of the third one. And that's, you know, a little bit too much to write about maybe...
0: So what has the response been like so far? The book's been out about a month as of the time we're talking right now. What have you heard from uh, readers in the real world?
1: The best thing is obviously hearing from readers. I love people who say the most common response I think is Emanuela is the worst person I have ever read about. I would die for her. <laughs> and I'm like, this is a great this is a great response. Second most common response is can somebody please give Ale a hug? And the answer is maybe. I don't know. But yeah, it's really incredible, right? Because this is my first book. So my first published book. So you write the whole thing, just because you're sort of gripped with this idea, and you write it in a vacuum, you share it with, you know, an agent, an editor, a couple other publishing professionals, but they're all kind of book people, right? So you're working on the thing together. And then when it goes out into the world, you're like, Oh, this is actually a real thing now. Like people I've never met who, you know, have no reason to want to pick it up are just going to pick it up and have their own thoughts now. So whatever the thought is, I think it's great. I just love that aspect of it.
0: On your website, it says you like writing about unlikable female characters. Why does that adjective part of that appeal to you so much?
1: I guess I like to write about characters who would traditionally be considered unlikable, right? Which is, for a female character, basically just a character who does anything that's sort of messy. A lot of times that you will encounter some readers who are like, you know, she's so spoiled. She's such a brat. I can't stand reading about her. Just if she, you know, has a sort of, unpleasant thought or, you know, a bad day, which is something that everybody has, right? Obviously in the book, Emma is doing a little bit more than having a bad day. (laughs) (laughs) She's, you know, actively murdering people on the page, which is not great. I do not support it, but I think there's an element of catharsis in being able to write a female character who is really unapologetically ambitious when ambition is something that especially for female characters, has historically been coded as evil. One example is just your typical Disney villain. If they are, you know, female or if they are male, but either one is they're like the most ambitious person in the story that wants to take over the world and that's what makes them evil. I'm not saying that MMO is not evil, but I'm saying what if we center the story around that person and sort of explore their experience in all its horrible dimensions?
0: And you do look at her motivations and her rationalizations for the actions that she takes.
1: She does rationalize it to herself, which is important, right? I think that's an important part of any character. I don't think it's necessarily important that they are likable, but that when we're reading it, we see them and we see why they're doing what they're doing. And that's one of the great parts about reading is that we as a reader get to play with the space. It's not just the author, right? Once you start reading a book, you are also a part of the book. You are playing with the space, you are seeing what this character did and why, and you're asking yourself, would I have done the same thing in that situation? And that's really fun. It's that element of back and forth that you can have even though the author wrote the book long ago.
0: So, of course, you did a great job in giving us kind of a a visual sense of what's going on. Have you had any options for the books yet for television or film?
1: I have no idea if I'm allowed to say anything. (laughs) I will say if you... That sounds more like a
0: yes than a no to me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say anyone who wants to can look at my website and I have an agent you can contact. (laughs) I have thought, I'm like, this would be a wild thing to put on the screen because I think the reason why is because Emanuela's interiority is a really big part of it. You can't just watch a character doing everything she does and not sort of be in their head I don't think because you would be like what is going on so I was watching like Fleabag and I was like this would be a great structure just the way that Fleabag takes you so far inside the character's head Mm -hmm. it has the appeal of a book but on the screen I think that would be great for it just putting that out there to the universe
0: (laughs) (laughs) now do you think your work in biology has informed your writing in any way
1: I wouldn't say directly, you know, people ask, how did I end up here? One great piece of advice that I think a lot of writers get, and I think is true, is that regardless of what you study, or regardless of what else you do, it's going to help your writing in some way, right? Anything that sort of gets you out into the world, exposes you to new ideas, new people, gets the creative wheels turning. So I didn't necessarily write based on, you know, some sort of concept in biology. But I just think that learning in that field and being taught a new way of thinking and also, you know, being exposed to different people is always good for the mind.
0: In one concept in the magic in the book, and I always appreciate in fantasy when this is the case, that magic has a price. And the bigger the magic, the bigger the price. And going back to the the resources, you know, it seems that now with global warming and carbon emissions, that that magic of combustible uh, fuel has a very big price as well.
1: Right. Yeah. So as I uh, talked about a little bit before, but one of the major contents of the book is that Immanuel is questioning the system, right? They're saying this is, you know, this is the only way. This is how our city has always survived. We've always been like this. People give up their blood, we have water. A bunch of people died, but you know, that's what it takes. And so she is basically the first person to be like, well, is it what it takes? What if I just get rid of, you know, this evil ruler and now the system comes toppling down? What is going to be left? So the question that she's really answering in the book is or exploring, maybe not necessarily answering, is can I find another way? Does another way even exist? I don't know if I would say this is a question that gets answered yet, but it's definitely a question that I think a lot of us are thinking about.
0: So can you talk about any books from your younger days of reading that really influenced you and and made you want to become a writer?
1: One of my inspirations for this book specifically was a really old classic, The Wizard of Oz. I feel like without giving away too much, there is a sort of we're not in Kansas anymore element to Beyond the Ruby Veil. I, um, I
0: did have flashes of that when I was reading.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that very. that's very classic literature. I also read a series of unfortunate events when I was a child. And that what really appealed to me about that was the idea of this is a kid's book for kids. Like it's not pretending to be anything else, but it was really doing its own thing in terms of voice and structure. And so being introduced to the idea as a kid Of playing around with something so directly. You know, at turns he speaks directly to the reader. He will, you know, do wild things with formatting. And again, not afraid of really bad things happening or really unlikable characters in children's literature, I think is something that probably influenced me at a formative age. Another influence from childhood is definitely Roald Dahl. Also, sort of the definition of how much dark stuff can I get away with in children's <laughs> literature? <laughs> really, really dark. Especially a lot of times, I think when you read something as a child, you're like, whatever, like there are witches that turn this little boy into a mouse or whatever happens in that book. Like, whatever. As an adult, you read it and you're like, oh my goodness. Like, is this allowed? But it is allowed. That's the great thing about children's literature is I think, you know, a lot of things are allowed in a certain, with a certain approach. And you can introduce children to a lot of really, You know, the kids who have the braids that tend towards the dark and morbid, you can introduce them to that really early and sort of encourage it in a healthy way.
0: So are there any uh, books recently that you're excited about that you'd like your readers to also check out?
1: Yeah, so I just finished Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. That is a great read for right now, the spooky season. I don't want to say it's your standard woman goes to a... Like creepy gothic house where something is definitely up. And sure enough, it turns out she was right, something is definitely up. It's definitely not standard in any way, but she takes that sort of old trope and really plays with it in great and interesting ways. Another book I just read was Raybearer by Jordan Ifueko. So that is African-inspired fantasy about a girl who is intended to kill a prince you know she is supposed to infiltrate the prince's life and you know become his friend and then eventually kill him but again the way that it's executed is not at all what you would expect so those are my favorite sort of books i think is a running theme they take this concept that you're like i've heard this before and it's like a great concept but i wonder what new thing the author is going to do with it these both definitely do great new things with those concepts.
0: So it seems like you really enjoy the subverting of expectations in in the genre.
1: Definitely. I do think there is a line, you know, as an author, you have to walk not to call out the last season of Game of Thrones too much. But I think if you're too committed (laughs) to subverting expectations, you are going to disappoint people by not telling a story that makes sense. Um, But I love authors that take it and subvert it. And then also it's still a great story that makes so much sense in retrospect that's the the pinnacle to me of storytelling.
0: Well, Mara, I want to thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us today on Book Talk. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Take care and can't wait to talk to you about book two.
1: (laughs) Yes, can't wait. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Take care and be safe. Mara Fitzgerald is the author of Beyond the Ruby Veil, and it's published by Little Brown Books for Young Readers. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111 or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of BookTalk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.